Welcome to Xanadu Gallery's Red Dot Podcast. I'm Jason Horsch, owner of Xanadu Gallery, publisher of Red Dot Blog, and your host for this podcast. This is episode number five, and we're recording on April 28th, 2017. My guest today is Franny Moyle, author of Turner, The Extraordinary Life and Momentous Times of J.M.W. Turner. Franny studied art history at St. John's College, Cambridge, and had a successful career in arts programming at the BBC before becoming an independent producer and writer. I picked up Franny's biography on Turner earlier this year and thoroughly enjoyed learning more about this important artist's life. Turner is one of the United Kingdom's greatest artists, and perhaps it's best known, but I didn't know much about his life, and I found Franny's biography fascinating and enlightening. Franny Moyle joins us from her home in England. Welcome, Franny. Thanks for writing this biography, and thank you for taking the time to share your insights into Turner's life. Oh, it's my pleasure. So what drew you to Turner, and how did you know you wanted to write this book? Well, you know, Turner is, as you said, just about... Britain's most famous artist. I mean, you know, we can we can debate that, but but he's certainly one of the most famous artists. But uh, the more I read and thought about Turner, the more I realised that, um, in a way, we 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 the, in popular culture, his proper story has, I think, become quite buried. I think um, because his late work those sort of misty, quite often they're called impressionistic works, have become so particularly popular over here, and I think probably in the States as well. Um, You know, he's considered such a forward-looking, avant-garde painter, often described as near abstract. I think that aspect of his work and the public's complete love of that aspect of his work has eclipsed if you like, the wider story of Turner, because that's just his late work. He didn't always paint like that. And we think of him as a modern artist, and in doing so, forget the fantastically interesting and important work he did as a Georgian, if you like, as a as um, a late 18th century artist and an early 19th century artist, where his work was very different. And so I was really interested in sort of peeling back time and looking at Turner not through the lens of modern art, which, as I say, I think he often is how he's often regarded, but trying to look at Turner as his contemporaries might have considered him. And in doing that, I discovered a really different artist than the one I I thought was there, I suppose. And it was a great it was a great story to uncover. Yes, and the um, subtitle of the book is The Extraordinary Life and Momentous Times of J.M.W. Turner. And I was struck as I was reading by how really momentous these times were. Um, you know, he was born in 1775 and died in 1851. And there were some truly revolutionary events unfolding during the 76 years of his life, both in terms of what was happening um, geopolitically with the British Empire, uh, and also in the art world. Can you outline for us some of the currents of history that Turner stepped into and ultimately helped shape? Yeah, and I think these currents of history completely shaped him as well, you know, both sure. ways. I mean, he was born uh, during the reign 
of King George III when uh, the British Empire was uh, defined by its territories overseas and it was a an empire that had grown up on slavery, that had grown up on its great naval trading uh, prowess. It was a different world. And this is, I suppose, just on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. I, I mean, so Turner not only saw the great political revolutions of his time, the rise of democracy, the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon. You know, of course, it was under King George that American independence was established. So not only did the British Empire change radically, not only did the the sort of geopolitics of Europe change, but there was the rise of democracy. The French Revolution, of course, for the first time saw, or the the first time in a while, saw monarchy challenged. And then alongside that, you have the Industrial Revolution. You know, 1815, you've got the emergence of steamships. A few years later, you've got trains. Um, and, you know, Turner was, was born in an era when it was great, these great sailing ships, these ships of the line, and he died in the age of steam. You know, it's, it is a vast... He, his life seemed to um, span, uh, as you say, this, this extraordinary transformation. What do we know about his childhood and his youth? Can his interests in art and his eventual status as a great artist have been anticipated looking at his origins? Yes. Uh, I mean, George and England was was a particularly the the late 18th century Turner as you say was born in 1775. It was a moment when there was a lot of social mobility. This was the moment when suddenly the sons of brickmakers or brushmakers or barbers, as Turner's father was a barber, could become artists or architects or politicians, actually. It was a, it was a moment of change where the power basis of British society was changing. Turner was born in the heart of London. You couldn't get more central in Covent Garden. Uh, and his father was a barber and barbers were socially aspirant. They were quite often actually mocked in, in the sort of caricatures and cartoons of the day as being up and coming. Um, rather like, you know, sort of society hairdressers today or mm-hmm. f- fashion designers, perhaps. You know, they, they because their clients might be the great and the good, some of that rubbed off on them. They could make a good living. Um, but the important and interesting thing about Covent Garden was it was absolutely the heart of the British uh, creative industries at that time, without a doubt. It was not only the heart of theatre land, but the brand new Royal Academy of Arts, which was the first endorsed school of art in in, in Britain, endorsed by the Crown, um, which was set up to professionalise art, if you like, was a stone's thrown, throw away. Um, it was on the Strand. Uh, Covent Garden was the heart of uh, publishing, of printmaking. It was where many writers lived. It was where the great sort of dilettante of the day hung out. So he couldn't have been in a more exciting um, place. And, you know, these guys were in and out of his father's shop the whole time and his talent was spotted. And Turner was not a reluctant artist. I mean, he was a compulsive artist. He was compelled to draw from a child. And so, you know, he was born an artist. And luckily for him, he was born in the right place. 
Turner's mother, we know, suffered from mental illness and was eventually admitted to several different hospitals for a mental condition. Turner was just 10 years old or so at the time, and she died in 1804, never having recovered. What impact do you think Turner's mother's condition had on his development and the course of his life? Well, I think there are two answers to that question. One is a sort of professionally and, you know, the impact he had on his professional life and, and then on his personal life. So taking sort of the professional life first, what was very interesting is he, as his mother became more and more ill, his parents, who were clearly thoughtful and caring parents, um, sent him away. And they they sent him away for his own good. I, I mean, you know, the idea of being in a house with a with a woman who there's very little description of her condition, but it seemed to be rages. She seemed to have a terrible temper, you know, possibly abusive, some sort of illness that that meant that meant she had a very poor control over her emotions. And so he was sent to live with his uncle his mother's brother, who lived out of town in Brentford, now a suburb of London, actually now inner London, but then leafy and green and by uh, uh, the Thames. And not only was he sent there, he was sent to friends and to school in Margate, which is a, a coastal town. And he was also sent to friends in Bristol, another coastal town. So in being sent away... Turner, as a young boy, suddenly saw the sea, the river, the landscapes that a lot of 10-year-old London boys would never have seen from his sort of background. And so he became enthralled uh, by, by nature and by landscape and also addicted to travel and adventure very early on. And those things without a doubt, in my view, informed his career and his ambition. He also was very lucky in Brentford. He he fell in with um, uh, a group of very um, influential artists and educationalists who also had, you know, from pragmatic point of view, ha- ha- helped him considerably in his career. So, you, you know, though it was sad he was sent away, in, in some ways, a whole wide world opened up to, to Turner at a very young age and he was sketching it and sketching it and improving his work and networking very early on. From a personal um, point of view, I think his experience with his mother left him suspicious. He was always suspicious, I think, of being tied down, dependent hmm. personally on anyone else. You know, the idea perhaps that the one person you feel you should be able to depend on your mother was was someone he couldn't depend on that that is something that you you feel throughout his life he never wants to get too close to women particularly he never wants to be married he's married to his work and so his relationships although he he had he loved women and had a number of relationships with women he would never marry them you get a sense he would never wanted to be tied down uh, perhaps to avoid disappointment, perhaps because he 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 felt that sort of domestic life. Perhaps he'd seen his father brought down by that. So I think, yeah. you know, it, it, there was a shadow on his personal life and certainly his relationship with women. 
You mentioned that uh, you know he gets a very early start in in life and is compelled to create art. But how did he formally make the transition to to creating artwork? And was it immediately clear that he had artistic talent? Yes, he he was really astonishing. I I, I mean a, a sort of prodigy. Uh, um, so he was spotted. I mean it was rather sweet. Uh, his father used to sell. Turner used to go out into the countryside, into the landscape. And at that time, um, topographical uh, watercolours were very, very popular and collected. The king collected them. And, um, uh, you know, topographical watercolours, that that basically means, um, uh, you know, views of monuments uh, and uh, or buildings of historic interest set in a landscape of interest as well so you know a view of a cathedral or a ruined abbey uh, or or so on and so forth these were incredibly well collected at the time and the juvenile turner went off and and just uh, sort of started to make a, a series of drawings which is watercolor drawings which his father would display in his barber shop window and I think very quickly because there were so many important people around there you know people soon noted that Turner Senior had a son with some talent so he was very lucky I mean people helped Turner not only did the local some of the local uh, topographical artists who were working nearby John Raphael Smith um, Edward Days who had studios really close by not only did they bring him into their workshop I mean, I suppose it's part generosity, part exploitation. You know, he, he had to sort of colour their work and they got a, he got a bit of drawing lesson thrown into the deal. But very quickly, he was also spotted by a number of uh, academicians from the Royal Academy and he got sponsored um, or promoted, if you like, into the drawing schools. And the drawing, the drawing schools there were really your ticket to a professional career. And not many people got in. You know, p- people had to submit a portfolio, a bit like art school today. And if, if you got in, then, then you were looked after. You went for free, you were taught for free, and you were suddenly rubbing shoulders with not only the most important artists of your day, but the patrons who had come into, you know, the Royal Academy to look for work. So his talent was spotted and he got very quickly into the right slipstream. And I think it's probably a little bit difficult, um, especially for those of us in in America, to to understand really the significance of the Royal Academy. You know, in the the contemporary art market, there are so many different paths to finding uh, your voice and your artwork and acclaim for for your work. But um, how significant was it really that he was being accepted? And and as you say, at a young age, uh, I think it was uh, at at the age of 14 that he's accepted into the school of the academy. How significant was it that he became a member um, in in his development and in his life as an artist? It's completely defining. It's so important. I mean, I think what... uh, you need to understand is that nothing like our contemporary art market or gallery system existed. We are in an era uh, in the late 1780s, early 1790s, when when Turner was uh, a student. We're in an era where the idea of a publicly owned gallery, where members of the public can go and look at paintings, didn't exist. I mean, the first public gallery 
where paintings were put on display just for the public to come look, uh, was the Dulwich Picture Gallery. But our own National Gallery was not launched uh, until the 1820s. And so for starters, you couldn't see art. Now, equally, not only were there no public galleries, there were no commercial galleries. You didn't buy your paintings by going into a gallery such as yours or, you know, Cork Street in London. That didn't exist. So it was a system of patronage. Uh, Patrons would buy directly from the artist. And, you know, there were people who acted as dealers. Quite a lot of painters acted as dealers, you know, for their friends as well. You know, there was a sort of network of how do I get a painting by so-and-so. But it was a completely closed shop in a way. And so, and what the Royal Academy did was it had an annual exhibition. Every spring, it had this big exhibition where the greatest and most significant patrons in the country came to see what the Royal Academicians were doing and they would buy from that exhibition. And that also reinforced the sort of um, network of patrons and clients uh, as well. And so to be, to, to actually be able to get into that sort of showcase was exceptional because there were so few others. I mean, Mm. artists did organise exhibitions ad hoc, but as I say, there was not... The the commercial galleries didn't really happen for about another 70-odd years. The idea of the commercial gallery that is anything resembling that that we see today doesn't really occur until about the 1840s. I think Agnews was one of the first. And as I say, the, um, the you know, a, a publicly owned gallery where you could just look at art and be interested and, and, and see works of art, that doesn't occur until uh, the 1820s. So, so the Royal Academy, not only did it train you, because how there were no art schools um, or there were a few drawing classes you could take, but again, there were very few art schools. This is pre the art school movement. So not only was the Royal Academy the first really proper art school where you went and got trained, but it endorsed you and it gave you a platform to sell your work. Gosh, I hope that answers your question a bit long and rambling. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, it's really interesting because as we, you know, as we think about the Academy and the artists who are developing within that system, um, typically you would, would expect that there would be a somewhat narrow range of style and innovation occurring within the academy, um, you know, that there might be a tendency towards a, a uh, you know, an accepted standard of, of right. what artwork is. Um, and, and Turner kind of obviously develops beyond that. And I, right. I was struck as I was reading um, about the kind of, you already mentioned a little bit, his travels and his love for travels. And I read him as, as somewhat of an adventurer, um, you know, both as a traveler and as an artist. And, right. and unlike some other artists who are content to stay in their studios and create, um, Turner really did travel extensively. What can you tell us about these travels and how important they were in his development? They were hugely important. I mean, Turner and travel goes through sort of phases, really, because um, with the exception of one year, 1801-1802, from the time he was born until the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, it was almost impossible for British people 
to travel on the continent because of wars, various wars. But certainly after the French Revolution and then the rise of Napoleon, you know, the continent was a sort of no-go. So first of all, uh, there was artists couldn't go onto the continent. So British artists did the next best thing and discovered their own country, which in many ways, uh, in the era of the Grand Tour, which had happened a little earlier in the 18th century, when artists and patrons had gone, you know, to, to Paris and then on through Rome and so on and so forth and to, you know, to these great cities um, and to Venice, uh, you know, they had sketched the Roman Campagna, not the Peak District in, in Britain. So Turner's travels were very important because he rediscovered Britain and he rediscovered Britain he was in the vanguard in a way of of great great landscape painters to look at uh Britain completely anew and find in it a, a um a new inspiration as great as anything that could be found on the continent so travel at home was very important for him but of course when he when he was able to go to the continent, you know, that was a whole other thing. That was a wonderful world of adventure. And what's interesting about Turner is um, he never went with, he never went with fashion. He always went against the grain. He always did what interested him. In 1801, there was um, the Peace of Amiens, it was called, where Napoleon and the British uh, had a momentary ceasefire. They had a momentary peace. It only lasted 18 months. And all the British artists who hadn't been to the continent for 20 years dashed over and did a sort of version, a mini grand tour. They all went to Paris. A few of them dashed on to Rome and so on and so forth. Now, Turner did go to Paris because the Louvre was very important, but he did something quite un uh, unlike the others. He went off to the Alps. No one else did. No one cared about the Alps. Uh, no one was really that interested. But Turner had been exploring the British mountains and he knew that the Alps would, would hold something for him, this great power, this sublime power he was looking for. And when he came back, of course, he had... Um, if you like, a, a, a really USP, a, a real USP, a unique, unique selling point, because yeah. no one else had views of the Alps. And then... And it was no easy trip. It wasn't like you just booked right. a tour of the Alps. Correct. It, it was, I mean, there was no, no one else went. Tourism didn't exist to Switzerland, uh, certainly not to the Alps at that point. Um, you know, mountaineering hadn't even really taken off. These are all actually quite modern activities there was no infrastructure you know no ski lifts no um not not even the kind of roads or bridges that that now uh make the alps relatively so accessible you know he was on a donkey going up little mountain passes they were having to do quite a lot of stuff on foot um napoleon uh, a little bit later actually built quite a lot of the great roads through the through the alps actually known as route napoleon today so he was a pioneer tourist, if you like, or an adventurer. Um, but he came back with these paintings that, uh, of course, were unlike anything anyone else had. And he did that again and again because the other place that had fallen out of fashion was Venice. 
And really, it was uh, after 1815, he, he, when the continent opened up again and there was peace again, a lasting peace this time, he went to Venice several times. And, uh, you know, we think of, uh, you know, Whistler in Venice and, and so many other great painters since. But really, it was Turner who rediscovered Venice again in, in visual art. You know, really since Canletto, there hadn't, you know, it, it had slipped away. And the most astonishing thing, I think, is he actually had discovered the south of France, the Côte d'Azur. You know, everyone talks about modern art starting on the Côte d'Azur. You know, the stories of Matisse going and discovering, uh, you know, this fantastic colour, impressionists before him going and discovering that that coastline. Turner had been there and he does the most amazing group of sketches that he never realises into worked up um, works. But he was exploring that region uh, before the Impressionists and then painters like Matisse and Picasso um, put it on the map. So he he was a really interesting pioneer. How was Turner received among his peers? Um, What were his relationships both with artists inside and outside the academy? Well, I think the point you made earlier was really interesting when you were suggesting that one would imagine the Academy had sort of a certain conservatism, I think is what you're getting mm-hmm. at. Sort of rules. Yes. And that's absolutely right. I mean, you can imagine why when it was set up in 1768, there had to be, um, if you like, a way of measuring whether art was good or not. And so Joshua Reynolds, the great British artist, who was tasked with being the first president of the Royal Academy and sort of setting the standard, if you like, set out sort of rules, basically. And in a nutshell, the idea was that the Academy aspired uh, to be like old master classical painting. It didn't aspire to go beyond what the old masters had, uh, had done, it actually thought that if British artists could paint like the old masters, we'd have got there. Now, Turner, early on in his career, absolutely sets himself against the old masters. He does some figurative works after he's seen figurative works by Titian in the Louvre. He uh, looks at Claude Lorraine, the great classical uh, painter, and Poussin, uh, also a great classical French landscape painter, and he paints like them, um, his own version, obviously measuring himself against them. He looks at Rembrandt, uh, and he suddenly lights his interiors like Rembrandt. But then there comes a point where Turner goes, well, this is great. These are great artists, but they are of the past. And it is time for British artists to move on and find their own style. And that's what he began to do. And that split, really, um, the artistic community in his time. There were a number of old school painters and critics who hated what he was doing because they thought it was rubbish. You know, they thought he was destroying everything the Academy had built. But the younger group of painters saw him as their hero because he was so brave and he just didn't care about the level of criticism. He just took it. And they felt, you know, Turner was forging a new path for British art. So, 
during his career, he was a real hot potato, if you like. He, you know, love him or hate him, he was like Marmite. And there were very strong arguments on both sides. But most of the younger painters saw him as a hero, the younger painters. And did he build close friendships with other artists? Were there relationships that were important to him, you know, throughout his life with, with other artists? Yes, he was an inc- he he adored being part of a brotherhood of artists. I mean, you know, obviously he got fed up with the old ones who sort of were were snippy, but he loved I, I mean it's interesting when I was saying earlier he was suspicious of family in in the conventional sense, but he loved being part of a family of professional colleagues. He was very clubbable. He was every Friday at the Academy Supper Club. And, you know, he was very supportive of artists. In his will, you know, he left money for there to be a home for retired artists and decayed artists, as they were called. And he had a lot of very personal, uh, very close personal friends. Um, George Jones, David Wilkie, Francis Chantry, um, you you, you know, uh, John Soane, the architect, was a very close friend. He had a lot of very loyal friendship. He was very loyal to his artist friends, and they were very loyal to him. You know, often as we look over art history and we look at artists who were forward-thinking or went against the grain, uh, we see artists who suffer, um, you know, in terms of their commercial success. Was that the case for Turner? How successful was he in selling his work? And did he enjoy a, a comfortable life? Yeah, um, he was enormously commercially successful in the first half of his career. I mean, very quickly, uh, he was earning vast amounts of money, actually, through a number of things you know, even as a very, very young man, by his mid-twenties, partly because he was extremely fashionable very, very quickly, very successful very quickly. People wanted his oil paintings, people wanted his watercolours. But he also um, was very canny. So he went into the mass market, if you like, of engravings, uh, and he made sure um, that he, wherever possible, had a good deal on on the the sort of publishing deals of those. He was often, often his own publisher, if you like, the publisher of his own work. So um, the combination of being... uh, Plus, he never stopped working. I mean, his output is just beyond belief. So a combination of a canny business sense, you know, doing a lot of uh, etchings and sort of mass-produced work, for want of a better word, working all hours, God send. You know, by the time he was 30, he was a very wealthy man. However, this vast fortune that he, he, he did build up by his middle age, it was a good job he did it in a way because as he became more and more experimental, certainly his oil paintings, his big showcase pieces just stopped selling. I mean, critically, they confounded people. And I suppose from, you know, the mid-1830s onwards, he died in 51, right? So the last two decades of his life, his showcase experimental works, uh, the sales really, really fell off. And he, the last 10 years of his life, you know, he, he, he barely sold anything. Having said that, you know, during that time, um, there's a kind of ver- a, a commercial version of, of Turner that still carried on because his engravings was, were much more 
conventional, if if you like, and still sold. So he still managed to pull in a reasonable income. But I think because he'd made so much money earlier on, in a way that emboldened him to experiment, because it, he didn't have. He felt he didn't have to sell his work. And in fact, at the very end, he stopped selling his work, even when people wanted it, because he began to collect it for the nation. And this goes back to the point that in his lifetime, he saw a first National Gallery, publicly owned gallery launch, what is now the National Gallery uh, of Britain. And he decided he wanted a place in that. He wanted a place in history. He wanted a legacy. And so he began collecting his, not selling his work, even if someone wanted to buy it, he began buying back some of his early work so that he could bequeath it to the nation. As you look over his body of work, the lifetime of work that he created, what do you feel it is that makes Turner's work so extraordinary? Well, that's a rather vast question because at different points in time, you know, the work is doing different things. But I suppose if I had to have one word, I I would say it's his intelligence. He is the most wonderfully intelligent artist. As a young boy, it's a different sort of intelligence. It's it's almost like uh, the intelligence of a scientist. So as a, as a young man, he is the artist who is studying how waves fall, how clouds pass, how sun flicks across a rock, how mist looks, how smoke rises. And he is what Ruskin adored about Turner was this, what Ruskin called his truth, you know, he, Turner could observe nature with a sort of careful truth, akin to that of a scientist. You know, he, he, he saw everything. His eye saw everything. And the more you look at those early works, which at a glance look very conventional, you see they're narratively very sophisticated, but just brilliant. And then, of course, as his work develops, he is, the intelligence becomes different And you get a a sort of different kind of thought behind the work, a thought that is more interested in eternity and spirituality and creating an effect, really looking to the inner world rather than relying entirely at examining the outer world. And what the other thing I think is astonishing in Turner is the scale of every work. And In his early work, you will see that he looks at a view and will see everything from, oh, a little apron moving in the wind on a shepherdess in the foreground, you know, to a distant milky coloured hill and a low setting sun. So everything from the micro to the macro. And that never stops, even in his late work, that these works that are often described as abstract, if you look at those canvases, there are details on those canvases. Flecks of paint, a little bit of impasto here, a, a tiny dot of red here. This sort of sitting within this great macro vision. That ability to work with that depth, both intellectually and technically, goes in different ways throughout his lifetime. And, you know, he's mind-bogglingly good.
Franny, you've created a very intimate portrait of this amazing artist. How did you conduct the research for this book? How did you get to know Turner? Um, I'm still getting to know Turner. You know, it's a real, real problem when you deliver a book and it goes off, gets bound and published, because every now and then you think, oh, actually, I'd quite like to add a little point here. <laughs> you can't. Um, but um, looking, you, you know, research happens in many ways. Year one is reading everything everyone else has written. You just got to do that. And there is a, a, a good body of, yeah, yeah. of literature out there on Turner Absolutely already. vast. And yeah. then you've got um, scholastic studies like, you know, turn studies. But you need to do that because you've got to kind of know what people think, the arena and so on and so forth. Year two, I mean, I, I'm not quite as literal as this, but, you, you know, for the sake of trying to break it down, what, once one's done all the secondary research, what other people think, what other people have noticed... And that, of course, in reading that, you get the basics of the life. I then go and look for myself. I then kind of work out if I agree with them or not and what they've missed and what can I find out and where someone isn't interested in something and I am, I'll dig dig more. So I then do a mixture of going through all the primary sources I can find. And a lot of it is a detective hunt. A lot of it is following leads that go nowhere. Um, And I do a huge amount then of looking at the work. I mean, I think you know as much about Turner, but of course, by looking at his work, reading his poetry, um, as as uh, reading his letters, as you do about you know tracking down the paperwork relating to when he bought his studio or when his mother was sent to the lunatic asylum. So there is a huge there's a huge amount of primary investigation, which is just just going through paperwork, going through dusty archives, old libraries, old books, old account books, old records, and then going to the Tate, where uh, you can ask brilliantly in the prints and drawing room to look at Turner's um, sketchbooks and his watercolours in person. They will bring them out and put them on a desk in front of you. It is the most amazing resource. And so you then you just, you know, then I spend days and days and days looking, looking so closely at stuff and uh, just trying to see what it tells me. How long were you working on this project? How long did it take to write the book? Um, To research and write five years. Wow. Turner's life ended with some mystery and some hints of, you know, what could have been uh, scandalous. Had it not been covered up, I, you know, I don't want to spoil that mystery for our listeners and I want to encourage them to, to pick up the book themselves. But I thought it was really interesting that you decided to open the book with this mysterious period at the end of his life. Uh, how did you decide to, to approach Turner's story in this way and set up the narrative using, you, you know, using this structure? Well, I think, again, it's this idea of what people imagine Turner is uh, in the way that I, I think our love of the late works have colored the, in the pop, the space he occupies in the popular imagination. I think people think Turner quite abstract painting. I, I mean, yeah. I'd be interested if you disagree, but I, that's, that's what I think. I think the flip side of that is they think of the caricatures of Turner. Wasn't he a sort of rather grumpy old red faced funny guy? And yes, he was, in the last sort of 10 years of his life. Um, But that's not the whole story. 
But it's the caricature that has prevailed of Turner. When he is talked of as Turner the man, he's described... I don't know whether you've seen the um, uh, film... Yes, uh, I have. Turner. That sort of version that Timothy Spall delivers of, of Turner in, you know, the last sort of period of his life, you know, that, that, that is what prevails. That's how people think of him. And, you know, what I discovered was a young man who was not reclusive, was not funny, was not a bit grubby, but who was fashionable and a real social networker and a mover and a shaker and uh, ruthless and all these sorts of things. And and that's what I mean, I suppose, about I wanted to write about him because I wanted to reveal Turner as his contemporaries knew him, mm-hmm. not through the lens of Turner as an old man and Turner, his late works. The book is Turner. The Extraordinary Life and Momentous Times of J.M.W. Turner by Franny Moyle, and that is spelled M-O-Y-L-E for those of you who are looking it up online. The book was published in the United States by Penguin Press and can be purchased on Amazon or in your favorite local bookshop. Franny, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights into the life of this extraordinary artist. I really appreciate it. That's great. And if I may say one other thing, you guys have quite a lot of Turners over there, overseas, um, in the States. So do look them out. Um, You've got a great collection over there. Uh, And I would add my encouragement to that. And I would encourage you to pick up this book. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed, I felt like I was transported back to that time. And, and, uh, you know, if we think of of some of the most amazing periods of of art history, uh, you know, what was happening with the abstract expressionists in New York in in the uh, mid-20th century, um, you, you know, this period when Turner was coming of age and creating is every bit as, if not more, fascinating than... Than, than that period. And so I would encourage you to uh, pick up the book and, and take that journey and learn about this amazing artist. I'd like to, uh, again, thank you, Franny, and thank you to the listeners for joining us for this podcast. We'll look forward to having you join us next time. <laughs>